This podcast is brought to you by Blackbee Ministries International. To find out more, visit blackbee.org. Welcome, everyone, to the Richard Blackaby Leadership Podcast. My name is Sam, and I'm your host, and together we're helping take your leadership to the next level. And before we jump in into today's podcast, I want to just mention, because I think this book is relevant to the conversation that we're going to have today, uh, I want to mention a book that uh, Richard wrote recently along with Rick Fisher, and it's called Your Next Pastor, A God-Centered guide for pastor search committees, and you'll see why that is relevant uh, in the the conversation to come. But I just wanted to leave that here at the top of the show. We'll leave links to this in our show notes. You can get it on Amazon, wherever you get books, but we'll also have it at blackabeestore.org. So today's show is with Sean Morgan. It's a conversation uh, he and Richard had. Sean is a nationally known coach who has developed a reputation for connecting ministry leaders and being a catalyst of fresh vision, he founded and curates cohorts at theascentleader.org. And as always, we'll leave links to his website in our show notes. This is a great conversation that focuses heavily on pastoral succession planning and really just churches in transition. Uh, Sean brings some great insights uh, into this underserved area, I think, of the local church Something that stood out to me is the percentage of churches that will be going through a leadership transition in the next few years. And it's just, I think it's north of 70% of churches. Uh, I may may have those numbers off uh, a little bit, but uh, to me, it just highlights the need uh, of the local church to better understand and prepare for uh, leadership transition. Uh, So if you're a pastor or if you know a pastor who is going to be facing a transition in the next few years, I think this is a great episode for you or for your pastor or church leader in general. As always, we'll have links to all of the information in the show notes. And again, this is just a fascinating conversation, and uh, Sean just brings out so many insights uh, into this area of leadership, uh, mainly dealing with Uh, the local church, and uh, I hope you'll be as blessed by this as I was. Well, as you know, one of my favorite things to do on this podcast is uh, interview uh, interesting people, people who are influencing the kingdom of God. Uh, And uh, we've got a special guest today who is uh, named Sean Morgan. And uh, Sean, I got to know him uh, a while ago when I was on his podcast, and he was so interesting that I had to get him on mine. And so, Sean, welcome today. Hey, Richard, it is an honor to be here. I've really been looking forward to it. And Sean hails from San Francisco area out in California. And Sean, just go ahead and uh, tell us what you do. Tell us about your organization and what you focus on, because I just find that so fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I started an organization called The Ascent Leader, and it's a small nonprofit that does cohorts for pastors. Hmm. Uh, Most of our cohorts are six to nine people. They're not online cohorts. They're physical cohorts. Uh, We were able, not only did we continue meeting throughout the pandemic, because we typically meet off the beaten path in homes and home environments like Airbnbs, uh, we actually were, we doubled in size over the course of, of COVID. And it's, it really, I think, meets a need in leaders that leadership is lonely. We've heard that axiom, but 
leaders have friends and acquaintances, but they don't really have allies and confidants. And mm. there's nothing like being a leader and under that pressure and then meeting somebody who gets leadership, who does leadership, who's lived it, and maybe even occasionally a moment where somebody's in the exact same season of leadership as you are just yeah. the identicalness of certain aspects of the mantle the burden mm. and that's what we try to do is align leaders and cohorts around seasons and so we do transitions leaders leaders who are new particularly new lead pastors of established local churches we do church planters right there's only two ways to become a lead pastor you either follow somebody <laughs> or you start your own thing yeah. And and so those are two of the verticals that we focus on. And then the third one we've started doing is executive pastors, which is oh, okay. a, sort of a hybrid leadership, but essentially like a chief operating officer of mm. a ministry, because that that's a heavy mantle in and of itself, even though it doesn't typically encompass the preaching side. So that's what the Ascent Leader does. Okay. And now you do you help churches in transitions as well? Like, do you, are you more focusing on the pastor himself or you, do you help churches when they're, they're losing a pastor and getting a new one? It's interesting. My intent, well, there was no strategy in this. First of all, I ended up helping new lead pastors after a baton pass okay. in transition simply because that's who all my friends were. And they were all lonely and isolated. And when nobody else was listening, they would tell me like, this is crazy. I don't know what I'm doing. And huh. so, but what I ended up realizing, Richard, is I, after the baton pass, I was learning things that needed to be done then in that moment, a year in, two years in, in the transition. But I was also learning things that should have been done beforehand. Huh. Huh. And so rather than just focusing on succession planning and sort of getting to that transition moment, which a lot of it is who you're going to hire, when, when's it going to be that sort of stuff. I was learning there were deeply embedded cultural things that leadership previous leadership often could have done something with and didn't, it could have been a blind spot or, or whatever in their leadership. And so I felt like over the, the years I've now done this for eight years, probably mm. about 10,000 hours of my time in transition that I've learned a lot about how churches should plan for and approach a pending transition as well. Mm. So, um, I've, I'm trying to, to do that, um, in a way that, uh, serves the church. So we don't have cohorts for outgoing pastors at the moment, but we did build a course with a mutual friend of ours, Carrie Newhoff. Uh, a mm -hmm. leadership course that helps lead pastors, both incoming and outgoing partner together mm. for succession. Um, and the reason why we did that is there's roughly 320 to 340,000 churches in America. Mm. The average age of a pastor in America is about 58. Really? And most people, nobody has a crystal ball on this, but most people feel that about 50% of the churches in America will transition a lead pastor in the next decade. So huh. 
depending on what number you're looking at, that's 160 or 170,000 churches over the next decade that will transition. And we feel like that is such an important thing to get right for the local church that uh, anything we're learning and doing that we can share with others and help others. So uh, we put together a course, which is actually called The Art of Pastoral Succession. Hmm. And about two thirds of that course is for the incoming lead pastor and about a third of that course is for the outgoing lead pastor. Okay. And that's how we strive to, to help uh, the outgoing leaders plan for a pending transition. Wow. Well, Sean, I've got, that has, that's, you've uh, given me an opportunity to think of a, a zillion questions to ask you. <laughs> and so let me, let me maybe start with those cohorts for pastors because I've, I work half my time. I work with business uh, CEOs, business executives, the other half with pastors. And it just baffles me. I mean, I love pastors. I, I love them. I, I invest a lot of time in helping them. But I'll, I'll deal with a guy who's leading a Fortune 500 company, and he'll have a leadership coach. He'll, have, he'll be going to seminars. He'll be reading books for, voraciously, trying to grow, get better. He's got, mm-hmm. you know, 100,000 or more employees. Um, and then I'll try to help a pastor who's got 50 people, and he won't be able to navigate coming to a free conference on a Saturday just to try to help him grow as a leader. Um, and there'll be a free lunch and two free books, and he'll live mm-hmm. a mile away. And I don't know what it is, but it just seems uh, that sometimes helping pastors who are, especially if they're struggling, Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why it, it can be so hard for people that are, they're wired to help people, but when it comes to receiving help, I don't know why it is pastors seem to so, have so many struggles with that. What, what have you found? How, how do you get these people signing up for your cohorts? Well, we don't have that many clients. I mean, if there's 340,000 churches in America, and we have some in Canada, by the way, as you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, we have at any given year, we have a hundred, maybe 120 clients. So, so mm. just a small, small fraction. Um, but what sets them apart is, um, hunger. Hmm. Uh, I, I do think particularly planters and transitions leaders, there is something about the planting season where if you're a planter, and you feel called to this, you're risking everything. Like yeah. this is your moment. And the same thing in a transitions leader. You you typically, at, most transitions leaders have a, a decade or a couple decades of ministry underneath their belt. And so this is sort of the feeling like, Everything I've been doing has been preparing me for this. Like, mm. this is the moment. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's a little bit higher degree of, of hunger. I think that helps. Mm. Um, but what I will say... I'll, I, you know, this, is, this is my opinion, so I don't really have any facts to back it up, but I don't think there is a, a um, if the mantle of leadership is in church is a 10 out of 10. And I think it is, I think leaders in the church that are great leaders, I think are the greatest leaders on earth. Um, the dynamics of, of that, I think I can, can talk through so it's a 10 out of 10 in my book. These are exceptional forms of leaders and, and people who do it well are the best leaders that I know. I think the church values and equips their leaders at about a three to a five. So mm. the mantles, 
the demand is a 10, the need is mm -hmm. a 10, the equipping is a three to a five. I think there's a huge gap yeah. in, uh, and, and I would say when you told me that you invite leaders to come for free, they're going to get engaged in some great content. There's going to be books. There's going to be people that they can uh, lock arms with and learn from and converse with, and they don't show up. To me, there's something about they don't value what what they what they have access to, um, yeah. and I think that's really difficult because the the local church deserves the best leaders in the world, the most yeah. innovative leaders, the most creative leaders. I'm not just talking about big L authoritarian leaders. I'm talking yeah. about just uh, across the board talent. Yeah, and uh, certainly uh, pastors that are struggling. Uh, there's a, you know, there, there's a sense of self-worth, I think, sometimes is on the line of this is my divine calling of God, and I'm not doing a very good job of it, um, then that's that's hard to face. And it's easier to blame your people uh, or your denomination or somebody else rather than look in the leadership mirror and say, how do I need to grow as a leader? I, yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. When you're a leader of a local church, you are in a position of great power. I, I don't think the human heart is, is made for that kind of power and influence over people, mm. um, preaching God's word, the pulpit itself, but also, um, we as humans have a tendency to create heroes out of our leaders. And that's true in the business world. I think it's more true in the spiritual religious world. And if you're not careful as a leader, you become, isolated. And so who, who then can speak in yeah. to your life? Yeah. Uh, if you're, if you're not intentional about it, the answer is nobody. Well, um, if you look at Moses, uh, you know, he was leading millions of people and who was speaking in to, to Moses. I mean, yeah, the voice of God occasionally, but on a day-to-day moment-to-moment basis, I don't think anybody was. It took Jethro, a pagan who had uh -huh. influence as his father-in-law to really smack him upside the head. And it was one of the most catac uh, catalytic leaps forward in Moses's leadership yeah. was Jethro's advice. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I before I, I was pastoring, before any great groups like yours probably existed, but I just kind of innately did that. I, everywhere I've ever been as a leader, I've just pulled in people to say, hey, how would you like to meet on a regular basis and grow together? And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I've, I've told people, I don't think I've ever been invited to a group like that. I've always just taken the initiative to, when I moved into town, to see who else there might be that was like-minded and wanted uh, to join. And I got turned down several times. You know, interesting, when I became a pastor, I went around to some pastors to say, hey, how would you like to meet? Um, the first two guys turned me down, but eventually I got a great group together that we became fast friends and the guys who turned me down, uh, ended up out of the ministry and, uh, and leaving their church. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, I, something that I find too, uh, when I, when I think about transitions, um, I watched a lot of churches and if a church is going to really grow to be great, um, uh, there's not really necessarily a quick way of doing that. I mean, you just have to build in, you know, you just have to put some years of solid leadership together in a row. And often that can mean a couple of godly leaders in a row, a couple of pastors who build upon what was left uh, for, you know, for them. But I, and that's why I've always felt like transitions were so crucial because mm -hmm. my experience was you, you'll find a good pastor, he'll grow a strong church and then the church, he'll move on and the church will make some kind of brain dead decisions. 
they'll call someone who's not a good fit at all, and the guy will be insecure because you know, everyone talks about the former guy and how great he was. And the next thing you know, the, the next guy is kind of tearing down what was took years to build. And instead of moving forward, building on that guy's shoulders, he tears it back down to the, the foundation, starts all over. And, and so I just, I've seen so many churches that it's like, you got to start all over again every time there's a new leader. Instead of growing and growing and, and building and building, it's always tear it back down to the, the foundation, we'll start over again. And so how do you how do you help a church or how does a pastor, if you sense maybe, you know, I think I may be here five, seven years and then I'm sensing, you know, I may God may have something else for me. What can you do uh, to, to have that kind of transition where uh, you don't, you know, everything's not lost once you move on? Yeah, well, the what's behind that question is an exceptional perspective, which is there's always something there. If there's people there, if God's thumbprint has been there, there can be a lot of dysfunction today, but there's always something there that you can build on. Yeah. And exceptional leaders will not blow the whole thing up, but will seek to find that, that remnant and build on. And so I think <clears throat> what I would say would be, that in a time of transition, there's always anxiety. What's gonna change? Mm -hmm. um, so I'll plant a seed here is we did a study, it's actually available on our website, uh, which is, should be in the show notes, theascentleader.org, uh, and it's free, and it's the most expansive study on church transitions that I know of. It was mm. a Barna study that uh, CDF Capital, uh, a church bank put on to really study how churches are led after the baton pass in a transition. And so the first thing I would say, which is an, a, a word of encouragement, is that Prior to, this is hundreds and hundreds of churches across America that are surveyed, prior to transition, only about 33% considered themselves healthy and growing. And by the three-year point after transition, 75% considered themselves healthy and growing. Hmm. So more than twice as likely. So transitions, the, the local church is today what it is 2000 years after Christ because of transitions, some good ones, some bad ones, but because of surviving and maybe even thriving through transitions. So there's a word of hope is we shouldn't be entirely fearful. Some things are going to change, but we ought to believe and trust that God's in that. The second thing I would add to that, uh, after that word of encouragement, it goes back to what you said of, of what is it? that is there that is not going to change. A lot's going to change, but what is it that is there within that church, within their culture, within their history, um, their norms and values? And these might not be stated. You might not be able to read these on the wall or on their website, but if you look, you should find some form of the Great Commission and the Great Commandment as part of what made this church great. It might not be last year. Maybe it was a hundred years ago. Maybe it was 50 years ago. Some form of the great commission and the great commandment, which is love God and love others. And that's what will never change. We are Christ's bride and we are on mission. And this work isn't complete until his second coming. So 
as we look back into our history, what can we see where people gave of themselves in extraordinary ways and selfless ways for the mission of the church, the Great Commission? And and you may have to peel back the layers of the onion, but you've got to find those stories. You've got to find those people who can champion what will happen in the future, which the success of a transition is not in the moment. It's got to be the five to 10 year look Mm. is how do we look back in the past and see what God has done that paints a picture of the faith that we need to have to see what he will continue to do. Mm. Now, you know, I I know there's different kinds of polities in churches. And so some, some pastors have a lot more say in how he's replaced. You, you, You can maybe you know, select your, your, your successor and others are very, very congregational. And it's just, you, you finish your tenure and you leave and the church will, you know, take it from there and find the next person. But, uh, but you know, my experience has been that, um, that there were some, uh, kind of commonly accepted ways of doing things, especially in congregational churches, which is, was a lot of my experience, uh, that it was, it was just because it was commonly accepted wasn't necessarily that it was biblical or even helpful. It's just what everybody did, you know? And so two things that I saw, and, uh, one was that there was this, and, and I think it, you know, it probably speaks to any kind of transition, but there was this, the sense that whatever kind of leader you had before, the next guy needs to be very different almost the opposite. So if your last pastor was really heavy on evangelism, then the next guy needs to be a discipleship guy, you know? And if, if one guy was really good on building buildings, the next guy needs to be good on stewardship and trying to help raise money to pay for those buildings. But it was, it was always, let, let's have the pendulum keep swinging back and forth. Um, and, and, but the problem with that, I mean, I, I get it that if a pastor leaves, you probably need someone who's going to bring some different things to the table. If you needed someone who was exactly like the last guy, maybe God would just leave that guy here. But, you know, so I get that. But, but for instance, if you've got uh, someone and he's been at the church for 10, 15 years and every, you know, all the people who've joined the church have joined because they like his style. They like the way he preaches. They like how he administers. And so you got a church filled with people who like and respond to a certain style. And then you go out and get someone with an entirely different style. Like you're just, it's a recipe for a disaster. And a lot of churches, that's exactly what they've experienced. How would you, you know, any advice on if you're trying to help, uh, you know, a pastor, like you don't need, you don't necessarily need a clone, just like the guy that's leaving. But like, what would you say if, if it, you know, someone's thinking about, Leaving a church is is realizing we may need to do a transition here, uh, you know. And I know you've worked with some pretty high profile guys that it's pretty hard to find a clone of some of the talented guys you're trying to replace or help replace. And so, what do you do? Do you just get someone totally different or a, a pale, you know, uh, you know, comparison to the the original or? What do you do when you're, you know, okay, we've had this kind of leader. Now, what kind of leader should we be looking for next? Yeah, I think that's a, is a big challenge for a variety of reasons. Almost every church, um, because a pastor is preaching so much, they are the main personality and main face. You don't have to be a personality centric culture to have this, the lead pastor, which is almost always the lead preacher, most frequent communicator, 
um, have that kind of influence on a church. So uh, typically what you see is in their 40s and early 50s, a pastor is in their building years. And so they're, they're, they are up front more and things are taking a shape around them more. Um, ideally, that needs to be tapered at some point, I tell most pastors, I think there's a diminishing return after the first 36 times you pre or after not the first, but after 36 times of preaching a year. Hmm. So, um, I, I think I would say you don't need to preach 48 times a year, um, or really? 50 times a year. Um, I think there's a diminishing return. So there is a way I think to, now why, why would that, why would that be you? So if you preach 36 times in a year, after, yeah. after that, why, why would there be a diminishing return? Well, uh, first of all, because not everybody comes every Sunday, right? So um, not all Sundays are created equal. So Christmas and Easter um, are going to be at the top. Mm -hmm. And July 4th and Super Bowl Sunday and New Year's Sunday <laughs> are going to be at the bottom. <laughs> so um, I, rather than... Uh, just, you know, preach uh, other than your vacation, you know, be preaching all the time. I think there's an opportunity to begin to help the church um, learn from other personalities and other voices. That's kind of where I'm going with it. Oh, okay. And hmm. so I think you could look at uh, on a seasonal basis, what are the least attended services every year? And you're hmm. going to find 12 or 15 least attended. And so, um, you want your lead pastor rested for, um, Easter. You want them to have, they're going to have the most people in the room, the most people listening online on mm. Easter and, and Christmas. Okay. So if they're preaching every other Sunday, how much margin are they going to have for those Sundays to be a, a, a little bit more prepared, a little bit more rested, a little bit more prayed up? Mm. So I would say, so get strategic about the calendar and use, so, so that'll help your lead pastor, your main communicator, have a little bit more margin to invest in the higher attended Sundays of the year. Okay. You know, I would say preaching consistently from when school starts in August for the next four to six weeks. I think you want your lead pastor preaching right there because that's when everybody's settling into their fall rhythm. Mm. Um, so give your pastor June and July off um, in terms of preaching or whatever, or just give them it off. I, but, but that season is way more important than the middle of, of summer, um, or spring break in March when there's a couple of Sundays where you're just going to have a regular attendance. So if you stra strategize around that, I think you help your lead pastor preach better on the bigger Sundays, but here's the key going back to your original question is it gives you an opportunity to bring in other communicators who can help teach the church how to learn from other voices and other styles. And mm. so as a leader, I would say, who is our community becoming in five years? Like if we look at the demographic trends and you can go on your school, like your county's website or your school system's website, and they'll have that stuff in there. What are the age and, and demographic style? I'm not just talking about age and race. I'm talking about um, income trends, marriage trends, are people single or married? Uh, do they have small kids in their homes? Like who's moving into this town? Who are we becoming? And then as we look at those 15 other Sundays a year that we're going to have other people preach, how do we bring in 
people who can help us influence who our town is becoming three years from now, five years mm. from now, 10 years from now. Those are That's strategic leadership. You're taking opportunity to influence a church and help them grow. You're being strategic about influencing your community today and tomorrow, not just who was here last week. And hopefully you're also giving your lead pastor uh, some rest in their preaching rhythm. So am I against them preaching over that much? No, I'm not against it. I just think there's a diminishing return huh. from it. Well, I, I've known a number of guys too that, you know, preach series. And so when they finished a series, it was great to take a little bit, bit of a break, let your associate preach or an outside speaker with a, a special focus. And you're developing that next series and you're taking some time to really study and have a little break in between. And, and so very interesting. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's very interesting. Well, you know, one other, uh, I think misconception I've seen is, and my dad did this years ago, he was old school pastor. And I mean, he just did what was considered the, the appropriate thing to do. And that is if you, if you, he served a, a Baptist church, it was very congregational oriented and it was almost considered unethical to try to influence who they called when you left. You know, it was like, I've, I've discipled these folks, I've ministered to them, but now I'm leaving and it's not gonna be my church. And I'm not, it's not a, yeah. you know, it's not an inherited, you know, kingship, like that you just sort of anoint your successor. And so he, he just didn't hardly do anything to help the search committee or anything. And it, was, it wasn't that he didn't care, it was, it was like, that's what, how you did it. but. Yeah. But the problem is that, uh, you know, most of the members had been saved under his pastoral leadership. They, the only pastor they'd ever known was my dad. And boy, were they shocked when they discovered that not everybody was pastored like he did, you know, or pre they just assumed, okay, we just get another pastor and they're, they're all like Henry, you know, and, yeah. and, and the thing I've seen is if you have been a pastor, I mean, if you've done a good job, like if you've done a poor job and you've left the church in disarray, you probably don't need to leave any ongoing footprints. But but if you've done a good job, you've grown the church, that you've hired the staff that are there, most of the people there are there under your tenure, then you you probably know that church as well as anybody on the planet. And so you, you should kind of know what the issues are, the kind of leadership it's going to need. Um, mm -hmm. you, but, you know, so how do you do that, especially if you know, you may have a polity that kind of says you, you you have no authority to just go pick somebody, but but are there ways for a pastor still uh, to to help their church so that they have a smooth transition in getting the next person? Yeah, I think there's uh, the the key things would be like you're talking about in preparation for a, a change, and then the the next question is how do they steward? their influence after the baton pass. So they're no longer the lead pastor. They're the, the former lead pastor, the prior lead pastor or the pastor emeritus, or, or maybe they're just pastoring another church in another part of the world. Um, what do they do there? And so I would say on the front end, you're absolutely right. This is a person ministry is 24 seven. You don't punch a clock and go home and stop thinking about ministry. So this is a person who's literally been immersed in ministry. And so has their family for years and years and years. And yes, the elders or the search committee that's appointed, depending on the polity and what's all set up, they're going to dive in and have ownership over kind of the planning for that, maybe the selection and recruiting. 
but I think it's extraordinarily naive, whether your lead pastor is part of that group or not. It's naive to think that we don't want this person's input. Now I would also tell a church, I, I don't think, and I've seen all sorts of cases of this, that, and everything in between. But I think it's also unhealthy to expect your lead pastor to make all the decisions unilaterally mm-hmm. as an outgoing leader. I wouldn't want that kind of responsibility because who are they going to blame if it doesn't go well in a year? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So, but I think it's, it's really important to understand we're lay leaders and we're involved in this. Here's somebody and, and, and we dial into you know, ministry in different aspects of our week, a couple hours here, a couple hours there. But for the most part, ministry leadership stuff, we're probably five hours or less a month. That's probably a typical elder. Five hours or less of your energy a month is really deep into church leadership. And then here you've got an outgoing pastor who's in it for years and years and years, pretty much 24 seven, go to bed thinking about it, wake up at 2 a.m. thinking about it, wake up at six thinking about it. They do everything they can to go on a run or work out in the morning just not to think about it. (laughs) Um, So we absolutely want that person thinking about it. uh, Maybe not even have to be approval. Like, you know, do they have to give their approval? Yes or no? I don't know. Maybe, maybe that could work in some cases. But to listen to somebody, and I would even say their spouse, um, who can offer perspective that we could never have as board members and lay members on a committee like that. Um, what an asset to enter into a conversation and let them influence that where we can hold the weight of the responsibility and the decision, but we absolutely want perspective that only they can bring. I just yeah. think that's, you crucial. know, the, the last two places I left, Uh, I just took it upon myself to basically write a summary of during my tenure and not so much what I did, but what I saw God do. And so I, you know, God helped us do this and God added a a bunch of young, you know, married couples and God did this and, and God did this. And as I, as I've watched what has been happening, I'm sensing that we're going to need to address this in the future. And now that we got you know, these people, we're going to need to do this. And so I'm not giving you all the, the marching orders. I'm just telling you sort of in the driver's seat for the last number of years, this is what I've been seeing happen. And if I were to have stayed here, these are the things I feel like I would have needed to address in the future. And so, you know, you, so that whoever you get next is probably going to they don't have to be just like me, but they're going to have to have the capacity to minister to this kind of person. And, um, you know, like I, sometimes you see these, these pastor search committees and they'll have a profile, you know, we want someone who's between 35 and 40 and has one daughter and one son and, you know, so they can minister to young families, whatever. And, and that gets kind of crazy. It's, you know, you want to say, well, they just need to be able to minister to young families. Uh, now, what age they are? I mean, I know, you know, fifty-five-year-olds are great at ministering to young families, and I know someone who is a young family who's too busy to minister to other young families. So, you don't want to prescribe their age, but you do begin to sort of map out and say, "But here's how this church, where this church is right now," uh, and I've I've just found that to be a lot more helpful. And, uh, and then, you know, they take it from there and they can reject what you 
suggest it or, or they can take it. But, uh, well, Sean, I knew that our time was going to race by here. And there's just so many things uh, that you, you're addressing that I think are just so important. But just as you work with pastors especially, is there anything else that you're seeing trends right now? I know certainly coming out of COVID, there's some pretty worn out, stressed out pastors who had to work through something they'd never had to deal with before. Um, mm-hmm. But just as you kind of see the the lay of the land with pastors today, what are the issues that you're seeing kind of being fairly commonly experienced uh, across the board these days? I think pastors right now are coming out of 2022 encouraged, right? They just went through the pandemic. They've, they've gone through high inflation and pending recession. And most of them, the, the financial picture has been strong. They're seeing re-engagement. I had a church in Toronto, near Toronto, call me two weeks ago and said that uh, outside of Christmas and Easter, uh, the third Sunday of January was their highest attended Sunday Ever in the history of the church. Wow. So wow. I am hearing glimpses of encouragement like that. At the same point, there is a tentativeness about the looming recession. And so I think leaders are once again feeling they're they're in a pinch with that. I think for me though, what I would say is I would honestly throw all that kind of up into the wind, not throw caution into the wind, but throw those issues and just say, look, don't don't get too stuck on um the the end of the pandemic, what that all was like, or the looming recession, what that all may be like. Um, the nature of a healthy church is a church that is on mission. Mm. Um, any organization like a church where its financial model is paid for by insiders and the decisions are generally made by insiders, I, I would say you're 10 years away from turning into a country club without leadership who drives culture forward with mission. Mm. And because of that tendency to be insider focused, we're going to vote for things that we like and make us comfortable. Leadership has to keep focused on mission, which means um, taking risks for the mission, for the sake of the gospel, reaching, baptizing, discipling. And so I would say, yeah, there's a lot of things going on that could be, in my opinion, distraction, regardless of whether we have a big recession coming or not, the mission of our church is more important now in either case than it ever has been. We have to stay ruthlessly on mission. Mm. And the only way that happens is from good leadership. It doesn't happen. uh, You talked about congregational. It typically doesn't happen um, naturally from a congregation. We typically get the the democratic needs of the congregation and, and results in a golden calf. It's leaders who keep people focused sacrificially on the mission. And so I would say just a renewed sense of what does that look like in your ministry, in your church, in your local context? Mm, you know, my, that's a great word. My, my dad used to say, if you ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. And if you ask a congregation, what do you all think we need to do? (laughs) You're going to get the wrong answer (laughs) most of the time, Uh, because it will be comfort centered, self-centered, not mission centered. And, uh, but mission has a way. And, you know, I found when you're mission centered, even in a recession, the funds will be there. Mm -hmm. You know, the the, the volunteers will be there if it's for something that truly is uh, important to the kingdom of God. But well, Sean, thank Absolutely. you for that. We're going to put all the, the contact information in the show notes, uh, the resources. 
Uh, Sean is just a wealth of information and insight, and perhaps even you can uh, join in one of the cohorts uh, that he offers. Uh, I, I just feel like you don't want to be facing ministry and leadership alone these days. Uh, there's just too many ways to get discouraged when you're isolated and uh, trying to just figure it all out yourself. And so I'm really encouraged to know what you're doing. And uh, hopefully some folks will get involved with that as well, participate and um, gain from uh, the valuable resources you're offering. Yeah, we would love that. We'd love to serve people connected with you. So thank you for giving us a chance to talk about leadership and transitions. Um, it's always a joy to feel like uh, w- you and I got another conversation underneath <laughs> the belt and look forward to one of those days where we're in the same city at the same time. I'd love it. Well, thanks so much, Sean, for joining us today. It's an honor. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If this is something you enjoyed, it really makes a difference if you leave a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. We always love hearing from our listeners. So email us at podcast at blackv.org.